Please turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. Our passage this morning is uh, a lengthy passage, and there is some repetition in it, so we're going to um, read most of it, but uh, skip over the central section. So we'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pick up the reading in verse 19 of chapter 4 and read through verse 12 of chapter 5. Please give your attention to God's word. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war who died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed, 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. One of the most painful aspects of growing older, I think, is the loss of the ability to remember as well as we did when we were young. I'm going to share with you one of my mother's favorite poems. She sent this to me when I was in college with a letter. The poem goes this way. Just a line to say I'm living, that I'm not among the dead, though I'm getting more forgetful and more mixed up in my head. At times I can't remember when standing by the stairs if I must go up for something or if I just came down from there. And when before the fridge, real often, my poor mind fills with doubt, have I just come to put the food away, or have I come to take it out? Sometimes when it's dark outside, with my cap upon my head, I don't know if I'm retiring or just getting out of bed. So if it's my turn to write to you, there's no need in getting sore. I thought I'd written twice and didn't want to bore. Please remember that I love you and wish that you were here. Now it's almost mailing time, so I must say goodbye, my dear. Here I stand beside the mailbox with my face so very red. Instead of mailing you my letter, I've opened it instead. We don't joke about forgetting like that, like I think my parents and my grandparents' generation did, because we've come to understand how how painful and and dreadful it is, uh, things like Alzheimer's and things that rob us of the ability to remember. But when we come to the writings of Scripture, we need to remember that there's two kinds of forgetfulness. There's the kind of innocent forgetfulness that that poem talks about, where information used to be in our brains, but because of aging or because of faulty learning or because of stress, somehow it seeps out of our brains and we're not able to recall it. But then there's what the scriptures call deliberate forgetting or willful forgetting. That's the kind of forgetfulness where the information isn't really lost, but maybe we never really learned it in the first place because we didn't want to learn what God intended for us. Or we've learned it, it's in our brain, but we sinfully repress that knowledge because we don't want to be reminded of what God has told us and done for us. Willful forgetting is the kind of malady that your children often suffer from. When you say to them, why didn't you do your homework last night? What do they typically say? I forgot. Why didn't you clean your room like I told you yesterday? Oh, I forgot. That's not innocent forgetfulness. I guarantee you. Vast majority of the time, it's willful, deliberate forgetfulness. Second Peter chapter 3 talks about deliberate forgetfulness. 
It talks about those who scoff at the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back again in judgment and that all of us will have to stand before him as our judge. Peter says in that chapter that people deliberately overlook or literally they deliberately forget about the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. They willfully forget that God has already come in judgment. And if we would remember that, we would find it easy to believe that he will come again. When I came to my first class in my first church history course in seminary, my professor stood before the class and he quoted George Santa Anna. Famous quote, it goes like this, those who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. He made sure that we understood that, that, that he was referring to our tendency to repeat the mistakes that people have made before us in history, but he also made sure that we realized that he's also talking about his class. If we didn't learn the lessons of history, we would be doomed to repeat his class. Scripture, over and over again, pounds home the message that we must remember, that remembering is one of the most important spiritual disciplines. Scripture commands us to remember. We treat remembering like it's something we're out of control of, but Scripture commands us to remember. The Israelites were to put tassels on the edges of their robes, and the Lord said to them that the reason for it was so that you will remember the commands of the Lord that you may obey them. How many times, if you're reading through the Psalms, how many times in the Psalms does it remind God's people? God's word says to them, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. How many times in the Psalms, how many times in the Old Testament, how many times in Scripture are the great acts of God's redemption repeated over and over again and we're commanded to remember them, to make the effort to remember. When my children would say to me, when I would say, why didn't you do your homework? And they'd say, I'd forgot. I'd say, why didn't you try to remember? Why didn't you make the effort to remember? God's word commands us to remember. Judges chapter 8 Remember the whole story, the book of Judges, how God's people would be del delivered by God's grace and then they would quickly descend into worldliness and idolatry and rebellion against God so that he had to send judgment upon them so that he would have to send another deliverer. How many times do they, they repeat that cycle? But here's how God summarizes their whole problem. In, in the book of Judges. He says in chapter 8, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the ba Baals, the false gods around, from the nations around them. They whored after the Baals and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them. They had not made the effort to remember what the Lord and God had done for them. You see, this passage, this passage that we just read through is all about the need to remember, about God's provision for us so that we can remember who he is and what he has done for us. 
Last week we looked at chapter 3 and we saw how the Lord provided a miraculous way for the Israelites to cross over the Jordan River. We saw that the Jordan River at this time was at flood stage, which meant it was violent, it had churning rapids, it had fast-flowing waters, it was somewhere between a half a mile and a mile wide. There was no way, humanly speaking, that the Israelites would be able to cross over into this promised land that God had said he would give to them. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 3 that they were told to wait for three days. And during that three days they were to consecrate themselves, to prepare themselves spiritually to see what God was about to do. And then God instructed that his Ark of the Covenant, that box with the angels on top of it, that golden box which represented the law of God, the justice of God, but also the mercy of God, the place where the, the blood of atonement was sprinkled on the cover to say that God's people's sins had been forgiven, that the sacrifice had been shed, that pointed to the coming of Christ and the cross. That box was to go before them, that the priests were to carry it to the edge of the river and then by faith step into those churning floodwaters and then God said, I will stop the water. And he did. About 20 miles to the north, he stopped the water. The riverbed became dry and the people of God crossed into their inheritance. God was faithful. The Ark of the Covenant stood there the priests held the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle of the dry riverbed like a divine crossing guard while God's people flooded into the promised land. There was one point in chapter 3, and I didn't point it out last week, but it said there that Joshua was to choose 12, 12 men before they crossed. And it doesn't explain why in chapter 3, but we do find out here in chapter 4, what were these 12 men appointed to? They were to be chosen one man from each tribe, a representative of each tribe. So these 12 men represented the whole of the people of God. And they were, we see in chapter 4, that they were to go to the middle of the river where the priests were standing with the Ark of the Covenant. And each one of them were to pick up a large stone, put it on their shoulder, and carry it to the other side of the river, to the banks of the promised land. There's also an interesting point, we didn't read the verse, but in verse 9 it says that Joshua also took 12 stones and made a pillar, stone pillar in the middle of the river. But the focus in this story is on the pillar that was on the other bank, the, the, the pile of stones on the edge of the promised land. And in verse 6, the Lord tells his people that this might be a sign among you. The pile of stones was to be a sign to God's people. We've talked a lot about signs. Matter of fact, if you study the Old Testament, a lot of the Old Testament is about signs. Signs, as we've said before, are meaningless in and of themselves. If they stand alone, a sign tells you nothing. A sign has no purpose if it stands alone. But signs are very effective if they point to something important. And that's what the signs of the Old Testament do. That's what these piles of stones were to do, is to point to something significant. If the promised land wasn't in Palestine but was in Scotland, they would call these piles of stones cairns. They have cairns, piles of stones all over the nation of Scotland. 
And what cairns are for is they're markers indicating that something very significant historically had occurred in this place. And when people came to the cairns, to the piles of stones, they were to stop. And they were to remember what had happened, the significance of what had happened, and to meditate upon its meaning. We have those in our country too. You ever been to Washington, D.C.? We have piles of stones there. The Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, these are piles of stones that point to something significant that has happened in history. And it's really a moving experience to go there and to stand before these monuments and to remember what they stand for and meditate on their meaning for us, for the country. Well, this, this pile of stones on the on the uh, western edge of the Jordan River, on the very banks of the Promised Land, was like Plymouth Rock to the Israelites. This is where they first began to take possession of what God had promised to give them. And they were to put a monument there as a reminder of what the Lord had done and the significance of what the Lord had done. Twice in chapter five or chapter four, we are told that this, these piles of stones were to be a teaching tool for future generations. They were to use to teach the children. Let me read verses 6 and 7 again. When your children ask in time to come, what do these sto those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. One commentator said that this was the beginning of the Canaan Catechism, a question and answer to teach children about who God is and what he has done. We tend to associate catechisms with the Catholic Church these days, but catechisms go way back in all kinds of faithful biblical churches. Questions and answers to teach about who God is and what he has done. What these Stone memorials were for is what Psalm 78, the instruction that Psalm 78 gives to all parents. Listen to this. This is, if you're a Christian parent, or if you're going to become a parent someday, this is God's instruction to you. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders of what he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know the children yet unborn and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do you notice in Psalm 78 the connection between remembering and obedience? Oh, I forgot to do what was right. There's a connection between remembering and obedience. What is that connection? There's a connection between remembering and obedience because there's a connection between remembering and faith. And there's a connection between faith and obedience. Remembering brings and strengthens faith. And the stronger your faith, the more likely you are to obey. 
We live by faith and not by sight. These memorials tend to point to things, miraculous interventions by God, but we know that God doesn't feed our faith every day with miracles. That's not the way he works. Because he doesn't want us to live day by day by what we see. He wants us to learn to live by faith. He wants us to learn to trust him. Why do you go to the same doctor or dentist over and over again? It's because they've proven themselves faithful. They've proven themselves trustworthy. So you go back to them again because you trust them. Why do you go to the same car mechanic over and over again? Because you've learned to trust him, hopefully. Trust is faith. And you gain trust and faith by remembering the faithfulness of God in the past. And as your faith grows, your obedience becomes greater. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis said this. He said, the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. And so we must remember. There are great benefits to remembering, and we need to be reminded of these. The answer that the parents were to give their children when they came, you know, who knows, maybe 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, 200 years later, when they came to the banks of the Jordan River after they had settled into the promised land, they came back to the banks of the Jordan River, they would see the pile of stones and they'd say to their parents, why is it there? What does it mean? Why did, why did they do this? And the answer was that we were without hope of gaining what God had promised to us unless he had provided a way. The Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, went into the midst of the river, the river parted, and we were given a way. God provided a way for us to receive what he promised. The people of God were never to forget that. They had to work hard to remember that. Remember what Moses said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8? Listen to his warning to the Israelites before they came to the promised land. Before he died, this is what Moses said. I'm going to start with verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. Skipping down to verse 10. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Verse 19, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. The price for forgetting who God is and what he has done is severe. We hear those kinds of warnings and we think, how could the Israelites possibly forget what God had done? How could they possibly forget the ten plagues and how they led to Pharaoh allowing them to leave their bondage and slavery in Egypt. How could they forget 
the manna in the wilderness that he provided? How could they forget the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's armies? How could they forget this crossing of the Jordan River? Don't be judgmental. You are just as forgetful by nature as they were. If you were in their sandals, you would have forgotten too, apart from the grace of God. We are no better than they are. When we want to sin, we block out, we willfully suppress the memory of who God is as our judge and our redeemer, and we willfully forget his faithfulness, his goodness, and grace towards us. You can't sin if you're focusing on those things, if you're remembering those things. Who of us could sin? But we, when we choose to sin, we forget those things willfully so that we might sin because that's what our darkened hearts desire. Our relationship with God is based upon his promise, a promise that he gave to his people, the promise given to Abraham. If we believe in his promise, then our sins are forgiven. And the Bible, that's really what the Bible is. Sometimes people wonder, why is there so much history in here? It's because it's a record of God's faithfulness. Because that's what's most important. The Bible's not here to make us smart or intelligent. The Bible is here not to fill our heads with knowledge. The Bible is here to show us a God who is faithful. And this entire book is about the faithfulness of God as he has revealed himself repeatedly in Scripture. Each new miraculous event that's recorded in Scripture, each event, every time God intervened in history, it was adding to the narrative of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. So when... You had the exodus out of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, the conquering of the promised land, the kingship of David. All of these things were adding to the narrative of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to Abraham. That God would give to him a great nation, a great land, and that his people would be a blessing to all nations. And ultimately the promise that one day, from one from the line of Abraham would ascend to the throne of David and become Savior and Lord. You see, the whole narrative of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises culminates in the birth, perfect life, death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead, and ascension to the right hand of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This entire narrative points to Christ. It's all about him, because that is where redemption became complete. When Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished, that is the great historical event and the resurrection that affirmed it, that is the basis of our whole relationship with God. We are to remember and never forget God's grace. When we remember God's faithfulness to his covenant of grace, that leads to faith, that leads to thankfulness, that leads to worship and that inevitably leads to obedience. That's how discipleship works. It begins in grace and ends in obedience. It begins in God's redeeming work and ends in Christ-likeness. As we look back, our faith is strengthened. 
but it also strengthens our confidence for the future. In verse 24, it says that these stones were to be a testimony to future generations about what God not only had done, but because we could trust him based on what he had done, we know he will do what he's promised in the future. Notice it says, this is that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It is so easy to lose faith and to fear the future. To have those doubts. Is heaven real? Is Christ really coming back again? Will the Lord be there for me when life gets really hard? It's by remembering God's faithfulness to his promises of grace in the past that strengthen our confidence that he will continue to be faithful in the future all the way until the end. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Work at remembering. Work at remembering. How do you do that? First of all, you study this book deeply. This book is given so that we will remember. Know it well. But also study church history because God's great acts of faithfulness did not end when scripture was completed. God has still been acting and if you study the history of the church through the eyes of faith, you see a God moving in powerful ways and doing great things. And as you remember those things, your faith is strengthened. And as your faith is strengthened, your thankfulness is deepened and your obedience is increased. But also, read great Christian biographies. That's something that today's Christians don't do like we, they used to in prior generations. Read about how God was faithful in his servants' lives in history. It's a way of remembering. Listen to the testimonies of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we have them, our brothers and sisters here, come and share testimonies in our worship. Because when we hear of God's faithfulness in the lives of other sinners like ourselves, it strengthens our faith, deepens our thankfulness, and increases our obedience. And periodically, frequently, Take time to just sit down, shut off all the noises in your life, and stop and remember God's faithfulness in your life. It's so easy to forget how many dark places and deep waters the Lord has already brought you through. Your God is faithful. You know that from your history. You just need to remember so that your faith might be strengthened, your thankfulness may be deepened, and your obedience might be increased. Well, that brings us to the last important way to remember, and that's really what the beginning of chapter 5 is about. At the beginning of chapter 5, the Israelites are in the promised land, finally. After all of these hundreds of years, they're in the promised land, but it's not yet conquered. And yes, it says at the beginning of chapter 5 that the people, the, 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 their enemies, the Canaanites, their hearts melted in fear, but... They also were preparing for battle. They were sharpening their swords and strengthening their armor and getting ready to go to battle. So what does Joshua do? He performs a painful surgical procedure on all of his fighting men so that they're out of commission for several days. 
and then he spends a week in a religious festival. I don't know if any of you have ever studied military strategy, but I guarantee you won't find either of those things in military strategy when your enemies are preparing to go to war against you. But what it was is a test of faith. Do you trust in this God who has just delivered you into the promised land by this miraculous act? Do you trust him? In verses 4 through 7, it explains why they had not been circumcised. Circumcision was the physical mark that God had given to his people going back to the promise of grace to Abraham. It was the mark, the physical mark given to God's people to say, these are my people. And that mark in and of itself, the scriptures tell us right away, was to speak to an internal regeneration of the heart. A circumcision of the heart is what the Bible talks about. It was a sign that pointed to a very, the most significant act, the most significant miracle God can do in the life of any sinner. But that mark was to be given, but somehow these adult men had never been circumcised. How could that be? Well, the text doesn't really tell us. It's one of two things I know for sure. Either God had removed the sign of circumcision from his people because those, that generation, their fathers had died in the wilderness because they didn't have faith in God. They didn't trust in God. And they fled from their enemies in their rebellious unbelief. Or maybe they were just so rebellious, God still kept, the, the, it was God's intention that that mark still be given to God's people, but they refused to administer it. For whatever reason, this generation not received the mark of the covenant. And so God says, now it's time. This is a new beginning, it's a new generation. And we're moving forward by faith. So the covenant is renewed and God's people are marked again. These are Yahweh's people. And that mark was a reminder of God's grace, their deliverance and his provision. And so the next thing they do then is this week-long festival, not just any festival, but the great festival, the festival of Passover. It's interesting that in God's providence, it says that they entered into the promised land in the, in the first month of the year on the 10th day, which was the day that God's people were supposed to choose the lamb, the Passover lamb, to be sacrificed and to begin preparations for the Passover, which would start in a few days. And so they prepare for the Passover. The festival that celebrated their release from slavery in Egypt is now the festival that celebrates God's grace as they move into the promised land. The Passover was a celebration of God's provision of atonement. The blood of the Passover lamb represented the sacrifice of a perfect substitute in the place of God's people. And so as they took the blood of the Passover lamb and put it on the doorpost over their houses when they were in bondage in Egypt, the angel of death that brought judgment upon their enemies passed over them because the blood had been shed. And so you see, those are the two marks of the Old Testament covenant. Circumcision marking God's people, Passover celebrating God's provision for God's people. Signs that pointed to the most important acts of grace that God had done for them. Christ completed that narrative. Christ came and fulfilled everything that circumcision represented. Christ came and fulfilled everything that Passover represented. He was the Passover lamb 
who died for the sins of God's people. And at the first Lord's Supper, the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples just before he went to the cross, he said, took the bread and he presented it to him and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then he gave him the cup of the Passover meal and he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We do these things in remembrance. That's why it says that in bold letters on the front of our table. The whole purpose of coming to the Lord's table is to remember. Christ substituted baptism for circumcision. And he substituted the Lord's Supper for the Passover. Because he has fulfilled all the promises. Everything pointed to him. It is finished at the cross. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have crossed over from death into life. And therefore, we know that this faithful God will fulfill the promises he has made to us in Christ. He will finish what he started. He is faithful. And Christ is coming again. And we are to proclaim his death until he comes. So tell the stories. Tell the stories to your children. Tell the stories to your neighbor. Tell the stories to your brothers and sisters in Christ again and again and again. Tell the stories to yourself. Because as we remember God's faithfulness in Christ, our faith grows stronger, our thankfulness is deepened, and our obedience is increased. That's the way of discipleship. Remembering where we've come from by God's grace and where we're going by God's grace gives us meaning and purpose in life. There is no meaning and purpose anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, we are a forgetful people. We so quickly turn from the truth. We so quickly forget what you have done for us. We remember the pleasures of sin and we block out the memories of your grace and forgiveness and your goodness and faithfulness and power and justice. Father, strengthen our faith, we pray that our thankfulness might be deepened and our obedience might be increased. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.